I want to begin, before we get into our message, I want to read something that I received this past week. Uh, This is, you know, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, there was a funeral here. It was not within our church, but there's a little girl in our neighborhood who was involved in an accident, 17 months old, and the church where that family attended uh, could not host the size of the funeral that it was going to be, so they actually came to Parker Ford Church, and that's the fullest I've ever seen this church, honestly, 300 plus people, and we we had, you know, speakers set up in alternate parts of the building and we couldn't actually get everybody in here and uh, we, we, we really did I think we sat 286 people in here and probably there was 50 outside and uh, this family wrote us a note this is the Steinbrook family and I just want to share what they said it says dear brothers and sisters at Parker Ford Church our hearts have been greatly warmed our cares have been greatly lifted by your love and by the outpouring of prayer on our behalf thank you for the many tangible and intangible blessings placed around us due to your efforts We are so thankful to God for you as you stand holding us and holding us up in our hour of grief. Why God took her home so young is a mystery to us. No better answer exists to say it was her appointed time. Children are borrowed from God, but to be returned when requested by him. You could just cry when you hear these words of a father and a mother writing them. As sad as this makes us, it is appropriate or is proportionate to the joy we have for her. She will never face a day of sorrow like we who remain for this we can only be thankful heaven is a bit more inviting with little evelyn and residents there love fred and faye and the children the steinbrook family so i just wanted you to know that and there's a little bit of artwork uh, that their kids drew up for us so that'll be in the foyer after the service if you'd like to check that out you know the ministries of our church you support them and uh, sometimes they're kind of unexpected and that that funeral um, was not something that we would have expected in that week, and it kind of reshaped a bunch of our uh, human resources, the pastoral time we had to spend. And so when somebody thanks us, I think we need to share it with all of you because it's a gift from you. So uh, we're going to begin this message in kind of an unexpected way. I want to read what is one of the uh, great psalms of the Old Testament. It's called the Hallel. You know, Hebrew people, Jewish people spoke, um, they, they would name their poetry with one word, and this was called the Hallel. And you know this word. You might not know you know it, but we sing all the time, Hallelujah, right? And that's literal Hebrew. It's just exactly what it would have been. Praise the Lord. That's what it means. And halal is that first part, praise. And so this is the praise. Now, when I was a kid, I hated the word litany. I still do. I didn't know what it meant until this past week. Honestly, I wasn't sure what the word litany meant. And I'll tell you why I hated it. Sometimes we get these mental blocks with things in our childhood, you know, where somebody used a word in a way that made us go, I never want to hear that word again. And every time I would have a fight with my brother, who was two and a half years younger than me, I would come to my dad and I would tell him, I would say, listen, these are all of the absolutely terrible things that David Bightwork, my brother, is. You know, And I would list, he's, he's this, he's that, he's the other thing. And my dad would always say, uh, <clears throat> quit giving me the litany of all the things that are wrong with your brother and tell me what's wrong with you. And, you know, it's just, it's such a cop-out as a parent to take the, you know, the the limelight off of of the person I want to be there. You know, I wanted him to be sitting at the table with the the heat lamp and the lack of water, you know, and and I had this prosecuting uh, desire in my heart. My dad would always kind of even that out and say, you know, you can use all these words. But at the end of it, you're just listing the things that are wrong with him. And I know there are things that are wrong with you, too. Well, this morning, what we're going to read is actually a litany. And I've learned that this word means something different. It means a list of things, and often in worship it means something that's good. And so we're going to read Psalm 136. It's going to be on the screen behind me, and we're going to read it together. Um, At first you can just hear it, but it's going to be a list of all the things 
We hope. There it is. Uh, a list of all the things that these people wanted to say about God. Some of them are going to be foreign to us. This was written probably 2,500 to 3,000 3, years ago. But listen to what it says. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that first slide you can see, it's all about Genesis and the things God did in Genesis, the creation specifically. And here we're getting into the book of Exodus. With a mighty hand, he brought them out from the, the enslavement in Egypt. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. You might not even know who those guys are, but you find them in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they're these really gigantic kings. The Bible goes into the strangest detail about Og, of all things. He had a gigantic bed, and it goes into detail about his bed to let you know how big he was. And the Israelites always thought they would never be able to conquer this guy, and with God's power they were able to, and he was really an evil king. And gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Now, if you've read that psalm, and how many of you recognize some of the words? Anybody kind of heard this before? Not so many. It's, it's a famous Jewish piece, but it's not a famous Christian piece. And yet, you might know it better if I speak the words that are missing. In between every line in this psalm, I'm skipping a line that you're not hearing. Here it is, and you can just look at it there. Psalm 136 has this line that ends every verse in it, okay? So think about this. His love endures forever. Every line I just read, ending with his love endures forever. His love endures forever. So what I want you to do is something really unique. We never do this around here. And if you're new here this morning, you won't see this every week. But what I want you to do is stand, okay? And I, I'm going to read this psalm, and you're going to recite. This is how the people of the ancient world would have done it. They would have, I would have, as the worship leader, read the psalm, and then you would respond at the end of every line with what's in front of you, okay? So I'm going to turn in my Bible to Psalm 136, and I'm going to read all those words I just read for you again. But at the end of every line, you have to you have to be standing while you do this, and you have to say, his love endures forever. Can you do this? Now, here's the really tr- tough part. You have to stay energized when you're saying these this line, because you're going to say it like 30 times. Okay? I mean, it's, it's a lot of lines in this psalm. But, you know, when they say something 30 times in a psalm in a part of the Bible, I think we're supposed to think this is important. And so we're going to stand and try to live it out together, okay? So we're going to experience it. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them, With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. And brought Israel through the midst of it. 
but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the desert, who struck down their great kings, and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel, to the one who remembered us in our low estate, and freed us from our enemies, and who gives food to every creature, give thanks to the God of heaven, you can have a seat. Very nice. Very nice. I think second service did better than first. I got to, you know, if we were in camp, you know, there's those different houses. I'd give you the A star and them the B. Join me in prayer. God, we come before you and we are people who are not faithful. I mean, honestly, Lord, no matter who we are, when we come into this room, we have to admit that there have been faithless parts of our lives. And when you say forever, you know, this, this, love that endures forever, it reminds us of your faithfulness. And we're talking about faithfulness this morning. And we would ask that you would help us to worship you, to experience you, to understand you, and to live as worshipers of you because of how the scriptures talk about your love, Lord God. And we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness and all that you do in our lives. And we pray that you'd help us to see you differently this morning and more accurately. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in this series, and I want to read just the scripture that it comes from. This is Galatians 5, and 23. You don't have to read this aloud with me, but it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. I always forget the last one. There's nine. I have to get my fingers out. And then there's no law against these things, right? Great line that ends it. Um, and Galatians 5, and 23. If you're keeping track, this means you are two-thirds of the way through this sermon series before this sermon starts, okay? So at the end, you're going to be done with seven out of nine. We have uh, gentleness next week and self-control the following week, and then this series will be done. It's been a great series. I've really appreciated a lot of the, the people who have shared with us, Tim and Dave. Tim, by the way, is on vacation this morning. He's not here. Some of his family's here, but he's actually still at the shore. He'll be back Tuesday night. So uh, we need to talk about what faithfulness is. And I was thinking about that word faithful and that word forever. You know, in Psalm 136, just grabbed my attention this week. It says a whole bunch of things. And most of what it says are really irrelevant to us. Who is Og, king of Bashan, anyway? We know he's big. We know he's strong. We know the Israelites conquered him with God's help. Okay, fine. You know, 4,000 or 3,400 years ago, this guy died. Why do we care? You know, and there's that question. And his love endures forever as he's killing Og, you know? And it's kind of a strange sort of deal. But when I thought about the word forever in this psalm, it grabbed my attention. Now, to, to just kind of give perspective to this, I, this past week I was thinking about modern representations of faithfulness and forever and commitment. And, you know, we have these kind of pictures in our society, and I want to draw on a couple of them. One of them is this. Uh, you ever see Titanic? You don't have to admit it, okay? Um, but 15 years ago, there was this movie came out, 15, 14, 16, I don't know. But it came out, and it, they, they recreated the gigantic ship that sailed the North Atlantic. Uh, well, it, it made it halfway across, right? And it was the unsinkable ship. My kids even know about it. My one daughter was telling me about it the other day. And it was the unsinkable, uh, unsinkable ship, and it indeed sank, right? And the, the movie uh, had this fabulous effect of showing us what it was like all those years ago and what it would have been like to be one of those people who was first sailing on the Titanic's maiden voyage and then the horror of what happens when it's not. And there are these two characters, Jack and Rose, right? You remember this. You've all seen it. 
I mean, there may be five people in this room who haven't seen this movie. Maybe five. I see a few of you nodding your heads. Maybe ten, but most of us have seen it. And on top of what is a great storyline about a ship and the, the hubris of, a, of an engineer and a bunch of people who designed it and thought it was unsinkable and then it proved to be sinkable, on top of all that, they, they, they put this romance in the storyline. And frankly, the, the movie was more about the romance than it was about the ship. And it would have been better if it was more about the ship than the romance. That's just one man's opinion. But I digress. Jack and Rose are two people who grow more and more and more in love through this story. And I won't go into all that happens. But at the very end, Titanic sinks beneath them, right? And they're floating in a starry night, beautiful night, in the cold North Atlantic Sea. And, of course, hypothermia is setting in. And Rose is on this piece of wood, and she's just kind of sitting on her abdomen, and she's gazing. Just, you can picture this. You know? and, and Jack is looking into her eyes, and she's looking into his eyes as they're freezing. You know, And they're having this conversation about this, that, and the other thing. And then, of course, hypothermia sets in, and they fall asleep. And Rose wakes up, and she hears the whistle of this a uh, rescue boat coming by and there's a spotlight and they're looking through all of these bodies. They're looking for live people because all of them pretty much had passed away. But Rose wakes up and she's not dead. And I think even she's a little bit surprised by that. And she tries to wake up Jack and Jack doesn't wake up. In fact, he's never going to wake up. He's given in to the effects of hypothermia because he's actually in the water. And she starts to, you can see her processing this. This man that she loves is, is, is dead now. And she knows that this boat going by, they can't hear her yelling, and she has to do something. She has to get about 10 yards away to a guy who has a whistle, and she has to be able to blow this whistle so that the rescue boat can hear her. And she has to leave that piece of wood to get to that whistle, and that means she has to leave Jack behind. And she's holding hands with what is now a corpse, a dead body, and she looks in his eyes, and she says these words, I'll never let go. I will hold on forever. And with those words, what does she do? Do you remember? She lets go. And, and Leonardo DiCaprio, let's just call him by his real name, he, he sinks you know, below the surface, and you see the starlight in his white, pale face as he goes lower and lower and lower, and he disappears. And you know, it, it's just a great moment in one sense. It doesn't feel great, but our hearts go, wow, you know, this is love. And she swims over and gets that whistle, and she blows it, and they rescue her, and she goes on to have other romances. And you know, the storyline is told, narrated by her, in part, being 80 years old. She's much later in the future. And she's out there because there's a ship (laughs) looking for a gem that she was connected to. And they were asking her about the gem. And, you know, you remember the story at the end. She actually takes that gem and it turns out she had it the whole time. They're taking a million dollar submarine and putting it down and sending it to the bottom of the North Atlantic to find this thing. And it's sitting in her handbag, you know, and she takes it out and she drops it in the North Atlantic at the end of the movie. And she says, forever. And I I wonder in my head, and I wondered at the time, I admit I wonder, I was a cynical college student, and maybe I'm a cynical 37, almost 38-year-old today, but I wondered, I thought, what if they had to balance a checkbook together? Would they have still said forever? What if they had to raise kids together and deal with those inequities when it comes to disciplining children? You know, we have one way of dealing, I would do this in this situation, and then your spouse comes along and says, well, I would do that. What if they had to live in the same house and there's the way I handle the toothbrush or the toothpaste bottle and there's the way my spouse does? You know, there's all of these things that test forever. And when we say till death do us part, when we say forever, 
does it really actually mean forever? Or really, are we just kind of letting go? And when I, when I watched that, I actually went back and watched this clip. I didn't rent the whole movie. I didn't want to, want to see it again. But I watched her say goodbye. And it, when you don't see the whole movie and you don't see the romance building and you don't feel the pathos of that ship sinking, it, it doesn't grab you quite the same way, right? And you just kind of laugh a little like, you know, really? Forever? I'm going to hold on. And she goes on to a life of romance with other men, and she goes on to, father, to mother children and grandchildren and all this, and she says goodbye to that gem, and she says goodbye to Jack, and her life moves on forever. Well, let me give you a different definition, a couple of them actually, uh, of forever. This one comes from a dictionary, a Bible dictionary. It says, the word which exhibits God's character, faithfulness is the word which exhibits God's character as worthy of love and confidence of man and assures us that he will certainly fulfill his promises and execute his threats. That's a textbook definition, right? That's one that comes out of a book, and you can kind of feel how uh, definition it is, how dictionary-like it is. But I, I found a different definition, and it's, it's very different from that one. This is from a book entitled The Fault in Our Stars. Author John Green, he's a young guy, is a blogger and a writer and a speaker today, and he wrote this book about two star-crossed lovers, very different than Jack and Rose, who both have cancer. And the book's a bestseller. It's an amazing book. It's won all these, these awards. I'm not telling you he's a, a faith-filled perspective. But this is his definition put in the, the minds and in the mouths of two characters of what faithfulness actually means, what forever means. Some people don't understand the promises they're making when they make them, said one character. How many of you have made a promise that you didn't know how big it was when you made it? Did you ever look at a loan statement when you signed a mortgage and you, you had a, a, maybe the house was $150,000 and you realized that if you just pay it out over the course of a 30 years, you know, all those months, 12 months, 30 years, 300, I, I can't do the math, but you get, how much interest are you paying? You ever look at the, it, it makes you sick, right? I mean, you pay more in interest on most loans than you ever do on the principal. The house should be worth three hundred and thirty dollars or $350,000 by the time you get done paying it, or else you've lost money because you're paying all that interest out. The promise might be a little bit bigger than you think if you don't look at that statement. How many of you sat there with your spouse in the day that you're married and you're sitting there, young people, saying, till death do us part, and you didn't realize that physiologically changes were going to occur? The children don't sleep through the night. Why don't they sleep through the night? Nobody has explained this to me. You know, why do they get sick more often than we do? It goes on and on and on. The, the promise doesn't seem so big. I, can, I remember Shelby and I going through premarital counseling. We had this Lutheran pastor. They are fabulous. They had these great tests for our personalities. And at the end of us getting tested for our personalities, remember, Shelby, what they said. They said, are you sure? <laughs> they literally said this line, and we said, we think so. I mean, we're really pretty good people, and we expect that the other person's going to be really good, and it's going to work out. And they just shook their heads and said, we're not sure. We maybe th- You might want to think about this. The promise is bigger than you think it is. A lot of us make promises in our lives. Some of it's just, you know, promises to ourselves or to God. Maybe it's promises that we're going to change the way we eat, change the way we do finances, whatever it is. But we realize over the course of time that the promises we're making are larger than we thought they were when we made them. And here's the other character. Right, of course. But you keep the promise anyway. That's what love is. Love is keeping the promise anyway. Love is not the feeling you feel when you first find your Jack or your Rose. 
Love is the feeling you feel when you're staying committed anyway. After Rose has become something less than Rose was in her early 20s, after Jack has become less than this, you know, debonair, absolutely courageous young man, what, what, what have we become? Anyway, you know? Anyway, that word anyway, you can just hear the word forever. The first time we had one of these sermons, it was on love, of course, because that's the first of the fruits of the Spirit. And Tim told you that love is kind of the encapsulation of all of the other eight, nine, or eight uh, fruits of the Spirit, right? And love is it's all of the things that are listed, including faithfulness. Let's just take love out of that phrase and put faithfulness in. It says faithfulness is keeping the promise anyway. That's a great definition of what faithfulness means, right? So I got to thinking, as opposed to Jack and Rose, Leonardo and Kate, whoever they are, and I started to think about God, okay? Because I made some promises in my life, and every one of them has turned out to be different than expected, many of them much, much larger. Being a pastor of a church is you commit to it and you think it's going to look great. It it takes work. And sometimes you're a little disenchanted with what's going on. Sometimes being a member of any institution, any organization, there's, there's moments when we get disenchanted, right? Including our marriages, including our parenting, including our jobs, including our lives. Everything about our lives has the, the possibility of being somewhat disappointing. Now, the problem with us is we don't know what's coming. Now, we might not say forever, or we might not even say the length of time that we're going to say if it was We might not say it till death do us part if we knew how big that promise was. And yet God is the single only being in the history of the world who always knew how large the promise he was making actually was. And I suspect that the reason why we have to repeat Psalm 136's second line, that his love endures forever over and over and over again, is because we have a problem believing it. The thought that God knew who you were going to be and decided that he was still going to love you forever? What sort of God is that? God who says, I'm going to be connected to you all the way through till death do us part. And in fact, death doesn't actually have to part us anyway. I'll stay true. I'll stay committed. I'll stay connected. The Bible is filled with stories that make this point. And Psalm 136 draws upon them and puts them in poetic form for us and tells us that God's love endures Forever, And when he says forever, it means something entirely different than what Kate Winslet meant. It means something different than even what I meant when I said, till death do us part to my wife. It means something different than anybody else could mean because he knows what that commitment looks like. He knows the brokenness that he's going to face on the other side of the line when we don't commit back. We say we're going to commit, but it doesn't actually work, right? We fall apart. So this morning we're going to look at three aspects of faithfulness. And and they're going to look... um, kind of connected, hopefully. The first is that we're going to talk about the story. The story of God inspires us to be faithful. The second thing we're going to talk about is worship and how faithfulness is actually an act of worship. It only works if it is an act of worship. Frankly, faithfulness does not work if we're not doing it out of worship of God. And then third, we're going to talk about how faithfulness can bless the world around us. If you have been around Parker Ford Church for any length of time, you know that we talk about uh, up, in, and out, right? And these three words are very much up, in, and out. We're going to talk about God, the up, the story of God, and we're going to talk about the in and how his person transforms our persons, and then the out of how we can be transformative in our world. So we're going to walk through that this morning for just a quick moment. So first off, story. Now, when you were reading Psalm 136 with me, it's not an easy psalm, right? Ag, king of Bashan, dies, and we're supposed to believe that God's love endures forever. The firstborn in Egypt killed. God's love endures forever. 
But these are these, this is written by people. It's not written first and primarily by God. It's written by a person. It's inspired by God. I have no problem with that. But it's written by a person, and what that person is doing is thinking about all of what God has done in their life so far. It got me thinking, you know, we need to think about this differently. Nobody in this room probably cares about Og or Sihon or the Amorites or any of these people that lived so many years ago. What we care about is what God has done in our life. So what if we rewrote our lives into this psalm? What if we rewrote this psalm with our lives connected to it? Whichever way you want to think about it. So, you know, September 29th, 1975, an absolutely helpless little being is born next to 131 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, crying for its mom. And God's love endures forever. That little baby was me, right? His love endures forever. Three years later, my mom, I remember, I could, this is one of my earliest memories, she said, you need to give your heart to Jesus. I said, okay, what does that mean? And she described it in large theological terms, too, large, too big for my three-year-old brain. And, I, and she said, do you want to pray this little prayer? And I said, um, I think I'll do it later. <laughs> and she said, okay. And she was wise enough not to chase me down. And when she didn't chase me down, I realized that I was playing hard to get, and she wasn't really playing ball with my playing hard to get. And so she actually you know, waited for me to come back to her. And I came back and I said, okay, I'll pray this prayer as a three-year-old. And she said, okay. And she led me in this prayer. And I meant it halfway, maybe less than halfway, with my absolutely immature self. And God's love endures forever, right? God's love endured forever when I was in ninth grade and I decided I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be a God follower anymore. I wasn't sure there was a God, frankly. Or maybe if there was, he was more like the Buddhist God or the Hindu gods. And, I, 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 you know, there's a reason why I thought all those thoughts. It was a good reason. I'm a Michigan fan. Have you noticed? If you've been around here a while, you know I'm a University of Michigan fan. Blue all the way through. You know, you know who my dad roots for? Michigan State University. That's why I'm a Michigan fan, right? He roots for Michigan State. I root for Michigan. That's how it works in our family. I didn't want to believe in God. Why? Because my dad, he's a Baptist minister, believed in God. What a dumb reason to decide upon your faith, right? I just wanted to do the opposite thing as my dad. But God's love endured forever. That year I met a girl named Holly, and I prayed and thought, oh, this is forever. And it lasted less than six months. Thank goodness. And God's love endured forever. And God's love endured forever when I cheated on that math test in 10th grade. And God's love endured forever when I was a junior in high school and I had this moment with God where he spoke to me and I didn't know where it came from. I just had this conversation that I didn't know I was allowed to have. And in this room filled with people, God spoke to me. And his love endured forever, right? His love endured forever as I was a Bible college student and got a huge brain and a small heart. (laughs) His love endured forever. His love endured forever. In 1997, I walked into a church that I'd never been in before, and I saw this woman across the room, and she had red hair, and I thought, oh, she's never going to look my way. And lo and behold, coincidentally, the party we were having after church, she decided she was the the tour guide, and she was going to show us where it was. She got in our car and showed us where to go. That, That woman is my wife, you know, all these years later. God's love endures forever. We could go on and on. God's love endures forever. When I decided that I was going to quit this one sin that I had a real problem with when I was 25, and God's love endured forever when I started up doing that sin again when I was 25 and a half. God's love has endured forever through Josh Bightworks, all sorts of things. And you have a list just like this, right? God has looked next to 
uh, palm trees and bushes and living rooms and bedrooms and neonatal units. Wherever babies have been born, he has looked at little babies and he has said, my love endures and I love this person. He has loved Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler even as he loved Franklin Delano Roosevelt and, and Winston Churchill. He has loved Barack Obama and he has loved Mitt Romney. He has loved you and he has loved me. And he loved us the minute we were born. And he knew the atrocities some of us were going to commit. And he knew that others of us were going to grow to do who knows what, be Mother Teresa. And he loved us all. Isn't that astounding? <laughs> he likes people. And one of the messages of the Bible that is just massive, and one of the reasons why this psalm is so important is that, why do we praise God? Because he crosses the line and he says, you don't feel likable. In fact, you feel really out of touch with whatever this world's about and whoever created it. And I like you anyway. And that's the line, repeated over and over and over again. It's our story. It's his story. It's the story that brings us all together. It is the story of God that we are all small players in. You know, the story of God is not the story of Kate Winslet or Leonardo DiCaprio. It's the story of a God who has all these people underneath him. We're we're all kind of non-main players. Moses, David, they're not main players. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God, right? And yet he chooses to make his story all about us, the the non-main players, the other people. And this psalm is written to say, we know how far God has brought us. We know how God provided for us when we were in need. We know how God rescued us when we were in danger. We knew all of us have had adversaries. They might have been our own problems, our own habits. But God has rescued people over and over and over again. And this writer tells us that the story of God has got to inspire us because we will never be faithful people until we realize how faithful our God is and how far beyond our levels of faithfulness his faithfulness is. It exists from beginning to end. The Bible refers to Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, meaning he was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. There's this great line. I stood in the place where Jesus said it a couple years ago or a year and a half ago. He says to Peter, he says, you are Peter and on this rock. And what he means is this truth, this gospel, this belief in Jesus and some things that Peter had just said. He says, on this rock, I will build my, my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? Why? Because the church is so great, filled with such wonderful people? No, because God's love endures forever within the church. People like you and me make up this church. You know about your life. I know about my life. And if the church is only effective based on my life, to some extent we're in trouble, right? His love endures forever, and that's why the gates of hell cannot prevail against what his plan is. His kingdom is being built in this broken thing we call the church. It's broken, and yet God's love endures forever. And he's seen our brokenness, and he's crossed the line, and he's loved us anyway. And he said he loved us at the beginning, and he'll love us at the end. And death does not need to part us. What a great story. That's a great story. But then it moves on, and it's intended to inspire us. Now, whether it does or not, you know, that's somewhat our business. I, I do marriage counseling fairly often. And if you're somebody who has seen me for marriage counseling, don't think this is about you, okay? Because all marriage counseling looks a little bit alike. And if you think you've said these words to me, so have so many other people. So I'm not quoting anybody in this room or anybody outside of this room. But what happens in marriage counseling often is it's not usually about major crisis. Usually it's about erosion in a relationship. And so we sit down and we say, how can we freshen things up? I just don't feel like it's working for me, says one or the other of the spouses, maybe both sometimes. And I'll I'll ask the man a question, how do you love your wife? And I'm always intimidated by this question because I'm not good at the answer. 
any more than that person is. You know, it takes a lot of work and a lot of committed relational wisdom to be faithful and loving to one person. But I'll ask it anyway, and the guy will say, well, I go to work and I come home and I bring the check home and I do all this stuff and I, I, I try to show her that I love her with all of my life. And it's very hard for men to express themselves, right? Have you ever noticed this? Men are not expressors of their feelings. I'm speaking stereotypically if you're a very expressive man, forgive me. But most of us are not. And that woman, at some point in the middle of his monologue, breaks in and she says, hold it, hold it, hold it. You're saying that you do love me, but you never, and then she has a list. You never give me chocolates. You never give me flowers. You never take me out on a Friday night and get a sitter with the kids. Yeah, it's a different list for everybody, but it's always the same. She doesn't feel loved. And then he breaks into her monologue as she's interrupted him. And he says, well, I might love you more if you stopped cutting me down. You disrespect me. You, you tell me I'm not that good. That's a really common thing, too. I've read books that other pastors have written about marriage counseling, and they say much the same thing. It's funny how people are the same. Whether we live in Seattle or Philadelphia or Dallas, we're all the same sort of people, and we struggle in the same directions. So listen to this scripture, and then we'll talk about what it has to do with worship and faithfulness. This is from Ephesians 5. It's not a nice passage of scripture. You're not going to like it. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Whatever we read, keep that first line in your mind, okay? Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. But then it goes on. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. We don't like this line, right? Women do not like this line, especially. And it it talks about roles. Now, the Bible has never meant to say that men and women are less than equal. Just for the record, to get that out of your head, if you're stuck on that sort of thought, that's not what this means at all. It does mean that men and women are different, but it doesn't mean that they are less than equal, that somehow women should submit to In fact, it says that women and men should submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. That's how this whole thing starts. But then it goes on. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Later on, it's going to say that you should respect your husband. Then it's going to go and say, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In short, these two words, the, the, the word submit can be broken down into respect and love, right? Women, respect your husbands is what it's going to say. And husbands, love your wives. And if we did this, we would have good marriages. It's that simple. The man is unconfident. Most men are. We are broken people who have a lack of confidence. And that woman is put in our lives to help us to be confident again. If there's a respect given that's a blessing for that man. I think he goes off to work and does a better job and believes there's somebody behind him the whole time. That woman requires love in order to feel that she's who God created her to be. Every woman struggles with whether they're lovable or not. As far as I can tell, that's true of the human race. It's just normal human truth. But what happens in a marriage is this, that we say we're only going to love that person if they start to respect us. That's what those words meant in that counseling session that I kind of played out before you. Or I'm only going to respect them if they love me, and I'm only going to respect, love them if they respect me. And we're always waiting for the other person to work because our faithfulness is based on this relationship going like this, right? If I do the right thing, then she should do the right thing. And it doesn't actually work. At least, especially it doesn't work quickly. 
Sometimes there's a lag period. And so the only way to do this work of submitting ourselves and honoring what God's word says about marriage and actually being faithful is if we listen to that first verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ or of Christ, it says, right? In other words, you can't love a woman appropriately for any length of time without doing it from a sense of worship to God. If you're not worshiping God in your love for that woman, you're actually just doing it out of some hope that you'll have a good marriage. And maybe you'll have a decent one. But the fact is, in the difficult moment, when the crisis occurs, the only thing that's going to get a person through and help them to be faithful is if they're absolutely committed to reverencing Jesus. If they're committed to being faithful to God by being faithful to that spouse. You know, our marriages don't work, and one of the reasons why is because we're all about give and take. We're all about looking at each other and saying, well, if you would do this, then I would do that. And the fact is, that's not how marriage is supposed to work at all. We give, and we only can entrust ourselves to this thing called marriage because God is over top of the whole thing. My grandfather and my grandmother, they had a great marriage, I guess. You know, I was there at the end of their years when they kind (laughs) of yelled at each other a little bit. Um, But my grandfather would always say this, and he was a great theologian, at least, you know, that was his kind of perspective. And he would say this line, he would say, I don't trust my wife. Nobody can trust their wife. I trust God with my wife. My grandma would wring the towel in her kitchen and just be furious. I've been faithful all these years to this man, and he's so opinionated, and he says things like that. But it was true, right? Marriage brings the core of who we are into connection with another person. And the core of who we are is broken. It's messed up. And we find that out about each other as we engage in marriage or as we get close to human beings in general. We find that out. And the only way this works is if we say we're going to trust God with that spouse. And we're going to love them no matter what. And we're going to respect them no matter what. It doesn't matter whether they're respectable. It doesn't matter whether they're lovable. We're doing this out of, out of an act of faithfulness because by it we're worshiping Jesus. And God has said, I have a love for you that's enduring. It goes on forever and forever and forever. And he has inspired us with his love and his faithfulness to the point where we're inspired to be faithful to people who are not necessarily faithful back. That's really, really difficult, isn't it? I don't believe Ephesians 5 makes any sense until you believe you're doing it out of a sense of worship. If you think you're going to just respect your husband as he goes through a midlife crisis or as, if he goes through some difficulty at work, whatever it might be, you're probably going to have some problems. It's a worshipful act to stay faithful in a relationship. I'm using marriage as an example. We could talk about plenty of other things. We were married about three months, and Shelby said this line to me. She said, you know, marriage is not all that it's cracked up to be. (laughs) And then she said, it's not just because I'm married to you. I mean, you're a pretty good guy. She said, I think that there's more to this marriage than, you know, or less to this marriage than I thought. And there's more to the rest of life. There's, There's parts of me that are not truly fulfilled in a relationship with this other human being. There's a God who has to do more, and I have to be connected to that God, or this whole thing isn't going to work out anyway. It was both disenchanting and concerning while being hopeful. You know, I mean, it was like, I don't know. Have you seen that M&M commercial where the, the M&M's getting kind of eaten? And, and he says, it hurts, but I kind of like it. <laughs> I love that line, you know. And that's kind of what it felt like. Thought, you know, that's right. Our marriage has got to be based on more. But, oh, I wish I was more. And I wish she was a little more happy with me, you know. Like, we're only three months into this. We've made it 12 years. We'll hope. Uh, you know, God 
inspires us with his story. And what he inspires us to is being transformed, right? And it's in worship of him that we're transformed to be people who can live the way he says. So many times people quote the Bible. And they'll quote this passage, or they'll quote passages about money, or quote passages about morals, or quote passages about this or that. But they, and, and they act like it's a do, to-do list. But it's more a story than it is a to-do list. The story is the part that inspires us to live out the commands, the instructions, obediently, according to God's plan for our lives. If you don't get the story, then the rest of it's just kind of legalism, right? If you don't have what God really feels towards you, then why would you ever think you're supposed to submit to a man? No woman should ever think that's a good idea. We're broken people. And yet God says, this is a good idea. And it will make your marriage great if you do it out of worship for me. What a great thought. Isn't that a great thought? It's not mine. You don't have to look at me like I'm saying it that way. This is the Bible. It's God's thought for us. If you worship me enough, your life will make sense with other human beings. What a great thought. There's a third category, and we're going to show a movie about this. Um, that, that category is blessing, and it's how faithfulness, if we live out faithfulness in our lives, we're going to be a blessing to other people. And uh, a few years ago, we had this couple in our church, Todd and Jen Yeager, and Todd's a great friend of mine. I talked to him a couple of days ago. I still get kind of teary-eyed that they moved away. His job took him to Huntsville. I got angry with him. Thought about not talking to him for a while, but I decided we were still going to be friends. I've actually visited them down there. And Jen got involved in this ministry called Lincoln Village Ministry, which is really about the most inspiring ministry I've ever seen. Lincoln Village is an absolutely incredible place. It was founded by one guy named Mark Stearns in this uh, neighborhood that used to be uh, driven economically by a textile mill. And, of course, like so many towns, the textile mill moved out, and all those people were left behind without jobs. And so all those houses that surrounded the Lincoln Mill, or the Lincoln Village textile mill, uh, they, they didn't have jobs anymore. And what ended up happening is there was a tremendous amount of pedophilia going on, of all things. The worst crime you can possibly imagine, right? And for most of us, this is it. This is horrible. And Mark Stearns caught on to that, and he moved into this neighborhood, and they have invented more help for these kids who are broken than I've ever seen in one place. Psychologists and counselors, the local public schools shut down. They bought the building and started up a school of their own. They have shared the love of Christ with hundreds of kids, adapting some of them out around the country to get them into better situations. And they have blessed, and this neighborhood is completely transformed. They've bought about 20 of the homes in order to put in them people who can live communally with each other. And it is now a really beautiful neighborhood. I live there. It's great. It's a wonderful place. So Mark Stearns has a video on his website that I want you to see, and he's going to share with you uh, just an interaction with one child about what faithfulness can do in the life of a kid, okay? And this child is going to, sh- or th- Mark is going to share with you what it meant to this one child. So can we show that video, Jim? <coughs> kid asked me a great question one day. I think that speaks volumes. I was downstairs in the hall one day, and the, um, this kid was pushing another kid, and I walked up on him, and I said, hey, quit pushing and stay in line. He was eyeing me, and I couldn't believe it. I started smiling. This little kid eyeballing me, and I started shouting again, and I said, I told you to stop pushing. Stay in line. And uh, all of a sudden, he kind of put his hands out like this, stuck his chest out, and I'm just staring at him. He said, you going to be here every day? What made me feel so good was the fact that I could look at him and go, yeah, we're going to be here every day, man, every single day. It's going to be me, or it's going to be Thor, or Margaret, or Naomi, 
or Charlene or Susan, yeah, or a tutor, whoever, yeah, we're going to be here every single day. You know, the, the Bible says to cultivate, and Psalms 37 says cultivate faithfulness in the land, and I think that what that kid and what the, the school, what the people need to see, that we were going to we were going to cultivate faithfulness, that we were going to be here every day. We, we made a 20-year commitment to this, to this area, and we're in our eighth year. And so I think that gives them safety. It gives them security and the fact that they're going to consistently see us walking through the halls, loving them. So what was the question that kid asked? You know, he's pushing another kid in line, and Mark is the mentor or the, the tutor that they, they had a tutoring program in this one school, and he, he, he says, quit pushing that kid. And what does the kid ask? You're going to be here every day? That's the question of every orphan on this planet. Every orphan asks the same question. Are you going to be here today? And are you going to be here tomorrow? And are you going to be here the next day? Because you know what? These kids have learned that adults come and they go, right? Dads have come and gone. Sometimes moms have come and gone. Sometimes uh, teachers, leaders, people who look like they're going to stay connected, they come and then they go. And this orphan says, you know, you're just some adult, and I've seen a lot of you. And you think you can tell me what to do because you are an adult and I'm littler? The real question is, are you going to be here tomorrow? And are you going to be here the next day? And Mark realized he had to commit to this neighborhood for 20 years. It's going to be the end of his life, probably. He's committing to this whole relationship with this neighborhood in order to take people who are orphans and help them to become children, loved by their God. Now, let me just say this. The story of the Bible is the story of orphans. The story of the Exodus is the story of the Israelites who are enslaved by a false father, Pharaoh, who puts them through all of this hard labor and paternally takes care of all their needs but really doesn't take care of them, doesn't love them, right? And the Exodus story is the story of these children becoming children again after they've thought they were orphans. And God is saying, I love you. And that's what Psalm 136 is about. Frankly, every person on this planet, in the biggest sense of the word, is an orphan if they've gotten out of touch with that one line in Psalm 136. His love endures forever. We fail to hear those words in our lives. We can be an orphan at 37. We can be an orphan at any stage. There's a great story written by Walt Wangren, one of my favorite writers. He's a Lutheran pastor in East St. Louis. And he tells a story of exiting his office at church on a Tuesday night. And he's getting in his truck and he hears this lady crying out, Have you seen my grandbabies? Oh, he says, Goodness gracious. Somebody else in need. I can't do this, Lord, you know? And he goes around the corner to find whoever's yelling this, and here's this little old woman, and she's going, have you seen my grandbabies? And he says, I I haven't seen your grandbabies. And she walks right up to him, and she clutches his arm, and she puts her fingers, he says, between the bone and the muscle on his arm, and she hangs on like a little baby bird, and she clutches onto him, and she says, can you find my grandbabies? And he says, I I don't know. I don't know who your grandbabies are. And he says, how old are they? Well, you know, they're, they're... little bit taller than you and he goes oh she's a kook she's crazy you know i don't need to listen to this what are you doing how long have the men gone oh two years they've been gone to she's wandering around a rainy night dark in east st louis looking for these babies who are six foot five or six walt wangren six foot one so however tall these boys were they've grown to adulthood and they're up here and they've gone missing and here's this broken-hearted maybe partially insane grandmother looking for these children and he writes this piece and he says it's as though the quote from jeremiah that great prophecy rachel is weeping and crying out because her children are no more 
And he says, grandmothers and mothers in East St. Louis are crying out all over the place because their children are no more. Where did those grandbabies go? And he said the rest of his life, so far, he's struggling with cancer as we speak, Walt Wangren. The rest of his life, he's heard the echo of that woman's cry, realizing that it is his mission in part to find those orphans and to go tell them his love endures forever. In this story, he says, you know, your grandmother, she might be insane, but you need to go love her. Where did you go? How did you leave this woman behind? She's wandering the streets looking for you grandbabies. You know, we're, we're a lot like those grandbabies, and sometimes we're a lot like that grandmother. We're people who get outside of the father who says, my love endures for you wherever you've gone, however far you've drifted. He's waiting for you to return. He's waiting for me to return, and he's pulling us back, and we just don't hear it. It's like we don't hear. Mark Stearns quoted a verse, Psalm 37.3. It's a great verse. It's only translated this way in the New American Standard, so if you go looking in another version, it's going to look a little different. But it says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. You know, people who re-enfranchise children, who bless them with parenting, who bless them with knowledge that God is still in love with his children, people who do that are not people who are heroic. They're not people who are very dramatic. They're not people who show up and just make a big splash one moment. They're people who show up every day. And that question that little boy asked Mark, I I just love that question. The question of every orphan, including those of us who are in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 80s, 90s, is, you know, maybe we've gotten out of sight of hearing God. And we've stopped expressing it to others. We've stopped being inspired by his story and stopped hearing that his love endures forever and that we need to be faithful with each other and that we need to express that faithfulness in the smallest little ways, churning out good work all of the time. I hate to quote politicians, but Ronald Reagan's had a great quote about this. He said, you know, we can't do everything, but anybody can do one thing, right? Anybody can do something. I don't know what God has called you to. And it might not be mentoring kids in the inner city. That's one man's call. But whatever he's called you to, he's called you to live out his words, right? He's called you to be so enamored with his love and to realize that he made a promise way back when, thousands and thousands of years ago, as he created us, knowing there would be a Josh and knowing there would be a you. And he has loved you every day since. And he has asked that that would inspire you to faithfulness in your relationships. And he's asked that you would go out and share that faithfully with others, just loving on them, caring for them, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, helping them to realize that this is a difference between life and death. You know, we have all sorts of promises in our heads, but God's the only one who had the promise right when he made it. Right, of course, but you keep the promise anyway. That's what love is. Faithfulness or love is keeping the promise even after it turns out much, much larger than we expected. The world is looking for people who are not all that skilled, not all that remarkable, but they're looking for people who live out the story of their God faithfully. And they're asking a question of us, and it's a great question. It's the same question we ask periodically when we get lost in life. Are we going to be there tomorrow for them? Are we going to be there tomorrow, in the next day, in the next day after that? Join me in prayer.